Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. In the mountains north of Santa Fe. With that simple sentence, Forrest Fenn had broken his long silence as to the possible location of his fabled treasure. He never gave clues, ever. But now, it seemed, he wanted to help. But did he? I mean, is that really a clue? Are there mountains south of Santa Fe? Sure. But compared to what lies north of Santa Fe, it's not really a clue at all. Because what lies north of the New Mexican capital is a little range you may have heard of called the Rocky Mountains, which extend for over 3,000 miles and comprise the Middle Rocky Mountains, the Northern Rocky Mountains, and yes, the Arctic Rocky Mountains. Together, totaling almost 400,000 square miles of the most unforgiving terrain Mother Nature ever created. So again, not much of a clue, but it was enough of a clue to get the ball rolling and to get Forrest Fenn one step closer to what many believe he really wanted, attention. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to episode three, not far, but too far to walk. By early 2013, Mr. Fenn hadn't gotten much traction when it came to the popularity of his treasure hunt. His book, The Thrill of the Chase, wasn't exactly flying off the shelves of the one bookstore where it was available, a privately owned bookstore and coffeehouse called The Collected Works, located just a few blocks from downtown Santa Fe that was a favorite haunt of Forrest and his friends and admirers. He originally kept the printing of his book to a minimum, fewer than a thousand copies, because he once remarked, since my mother's dead, there's no one to buy it. And he was mostly right about that, for a while. But then, in February of 2013, more than two and a half years into a largely unknown treasure hunt, destiny came calling in the unlikely form of morning news personality and future figurehead of the Me Too movement, Matt Lauer. This morning, they're in Santa Fe, And Mr. Fenn is going to reveal a brand new clue exclusively for our viewers. Janet, Mr. Fenn, good morning. Good morning, guys. Yeah, there has been an absolute frenzy over this. This is generally a sparsely populated part of the country, but maybe not so much anymore. People are just so interested in this. And Forrest Fenn is with us this morning. What has the reaction been like for you? Well, it's been hectic. My website crashed for seven hours yesterday because it has so many hits. Okay, we've talked you into somehow giving us another clue this morning. Well, I'm not going to put an X on a map for you. (laughs) No? No. All right, well, how about the clue? Okay, the clue is the treasure is higher than 5,000 feet above sea level. The treasure is higher than 5,000 feet above sea level. Can you give us more than that? No. No? No, that's all you get. All right, so that's our clue. Maybe we can twist your arm and come back at a later date and try to see if we can get some more clues out of Forest. Forrest would make more appearances on the Today Show over the next few months in 2013, each time revealing an additional obscure clue 
and each time further raising the profile of his treasure hunt. Soon after, a tipping point was reached, and the search for Forrest Fenn's hidden gold became a bona fide phenomenon. His memoir, which had previously been collecting dust in the storage room at the Collected Works bookstore, was now commanding four figures in the second-hand market, as hundreds of thousands of fortune seekers decided to try their luck at deciphering Fenn's cryptic poem. Let's take a moment to remember what the fuss was all about and revisit the poem in its entirety. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down, your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it, tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. For some, the poem is a work of obvious and unparalleled genius. Meticulously crafted over several years, with every word, phrase, stanza, punctuation mark, or lack thereof, carrying significant meaning. To others, it's a crude work, striving for eloquence and gravitas, but falling pathetically short, with the author's folksy, aw-shucks demeanor impossible to camouflage. But for most, it just meant money. We've gone over the first two clues in previous episodes, and we'll get to the third in a moment. But first, we need to understand what drove Forrest and his treasure hunt into the zeitgeist. And more importantly, what kept it there. You'll remember Dale Neitzel from the previous episode. Mr. Neitzel considered Forrest a friend and spent a significant amount of time with him in the decade before Fenn's death. Not only was Dale a prolific treasure seeker with scores of trips into the mountains under his belt, he was also the creator and administrator of the website The Thrill of the Chase, a landing page of sorts that catered to the diaspora of Fenn treasure hunters. It was a place where they could connect with other seekers, share their solves, swap stories of adventures they'd had, and parse every single word out of Fenn's mouth. We started the blog in the fall of 2011. I mean, we had 17, 18, up to 2,000 hits per hour on that blog. And that maintained for probably through 2018 anyway, and then things began to fall off. But it was slow. I mean, we were down around 900 or so, 800, 900 for the last year. The blog costs a thousand bucks a year to run, <laughs> number one. And number two, it takes three to four hours a day of my time. There were also dozens of subreddits dedicated to the hunt, personal blogs that became popular, and of course, correspondence with Forrest himself. 
Oh yeah, I've stayed at his place. I I, I visited Forrest. I considered Forrest my friend, and I think he considered me his friend. Yeah, we were we were buddies right from the beginning. Uh, on that very first search that I went on uh, down in New Mexico, this was in May of 2011. So I was down there uh, hanging out in the gorge, searching during the day, and in the evening I I have a van that I travel in. And so I would pull up next to uh, the li- uh, a library there and steal their Wi-Fi. And while I was, yeah, I decided, what the hell, I think I'll, I'll write Forrest and tell him that I'm out looking for his treasure. He'd probably appreciate the fact that somebody's out looking for his darn treasure. There weren't very many of us in the beginning. And Forrest must have been sitting at his computer because I got an email instantly right back from him. And he said, you know, hey, you're just the kind of guy that could find my treasure. Well, you know, I didn't know what the heck that meant. That that mean I was close. Now you may be thinking, gee, this sounds like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And you wouldn't be totally wrong. Sure, a friendship of sorts was forged between Forrest and Dale. However, there's a different side to it. When you realize that the friendship itself was based initially on a hustle. We continued to swap emails back and forth during that summer. And at some point, he wrote me and he said, listen, there's a reporter here in New Mexico that wants to do a story on the chest. He wants to follow a searcher. Would you be willing to come back down here and be, you know, and be the searcher for him to follow? And Forrest said something about him. When you're down here, you know, stop by and we'll go out and have a cup of cocoa. So I said, okay. But I had this problem. Dale's problem was that he had previously been in business with a man named Creighton Fenn, who just happened to be Forrest's nephew. Dale and Creighton were partners in a business that involved diving on old shipwrecks in the hopes of finding treasures or trinkets that they could then sell in the antiquities market. Creighton would often enlist the help of his very connected uncle when it came to selling antiquities. Dale, now fully invested in a treasure hunt, that coincidentally was begun by Forrest Fenn, the uncle of his previous business partner, wanted desperately to avoid the appearance of cheating or any sort of impropriety. So Dale did what any of us would do when we want to be viewed as trustworthy in the beginning of a relationship. He lied. So I changed my name when I first contacted Forrest by email. I got a fake email. I got a, a different email account from Gmail, and I claimed to be Mike from Michigan. And so now I'm going out to meet with a television reporter and possibly meet with Forrest. And I had this problem. They only knew me as Mike from Michigan. And so what was I going to do? Was I going to continue the charade or was I going to fess up? So I went and uh, called Forrest and said, listen, uh, we're all through here, and uh, I wonder if I can take you up on, uh, you know, that cup of hot chocolate down there. And he said, sure. He said, let's meet at Collected Works Bookstore. So I had the advantage of knowing what Forrest looked like, but he didn't know me. So I walked into Collected Works Bookstore at the appropriate time, and I uh, I decided as I opened up the door that I was going to stop being Mike from Michigan. I was going to tell him the truth. And Forrest was there, he was at the counter, and he was telling them that he was going to meet somebody there. And They have a little coffee shop there. So uh, 
he went and took a seat at the table and I just watched him and I was just trying to figure him out. I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, he's like 81 years old and he looks pretty strong. Is this going to go well? <laughs> you know, am I in danger here? <laughs> and uh, anyway, I went over to his table and I introduced myself as Mike and shook his hand and he patted me on the back and and he said, glad to meet you, Mike, and da-da-da-da. And I looked him square in the eye and I said, Forrest, there's something I have to tell you. And he immediately went tense. Forrest is a guy who has had a lot of unexpected things happen to him. And a lot of them have been crappy. And he didn't know where I was coming from or what that was. But he, he was bracing himself for something. And... So we sat down and I told him the story. And as soon as I was done with the story, he lit up, man. It was like, I mean, he just big smile on his face. He started laughing. He shook my hand. He said, Dale, he said, you and Creighton can go looking for the treasure anytime you want. Creighton has no idea where it's at. There's no problem with that. You guys should go looking together. So here was this guy that I had, had admired, admired him for what he was doing I, with the treasure hunt. The whole thing was a gas to me. It was a lot of fun, and I was enjoying it myself. And, and so now I was communicating with the guy who invented this treasure uh, hunt, I, and I thought that was fun, you know? Who knows what he might reveal if I keep this conversation up. Ah, friendship. Now, this tactic showed up several times in the interviews conducted for this podcast. Treasure hunters would solicit a friendship with Forrest, just out of the goodness of their hearts and a genuine interest in listening to old war stories from a man who had lived a truly exciting life. And they would all say the same thing. I never asked for a clue because Forrest didn't give clues. But obviously, the closer they could remain to an aging man with a massively valuable secret, the better chance they had for an opportunity to capitalize on a slip-up or the possibility of genuine affection leading Forrest to bequeath his legacy to the newfound true friend. Kind of like the awkward kid who lingers in the friend zone with the pretty cheerleader, only to be there for her when she's nursing a broken heart and she finally realizes that maybe she's been blind this whole time. Whether deliberate or not, all the searchers who befriended Fenn had motives beyond friendship and were always on the lookout for a way in but every single one of them ran into the brick wall that was Forrest Fenn and the living embodiment of the phrase, you can't con a con man. More X marks the spot after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Dale Neitzel had his antenna up for years in the company of Forrest, at Forrest's house, and got nothing. What did Forrest get? 
free publicity in the form of interviews recorded in his gallery and a dedicated, staffed, continuously updated blog for the next eight years, all completely free of charge. And what did Dale get? Well, he got to crisscross the country looking for a treasure that he knew existed, but didn't know where, while spending a large amount of time with the guy who knew where it was. And he came up empty-handed. One thing you can say about Forrest, he treated everyone the same in that he offered zero clues to anyone. However, there was an aspect of Forrest's relationship with searchers that did cause him to treat people differently at times. For example, Forrest never asked Dale for a picture of him swimming, if you get what I'm saying. You'll remember Petra Perkins from an earlier episode, a searcher and Fen devotee from nearly the beginning. So I wrote to him, and he answered right away, and I was pretty surprised. And we started a correspondence over several years. People did have the same experience that I did. They would write to him, and he would respond. And I think some of them asked him if he would give clues, and he wouldn't ever. So I knew he wouldn't, but I didn't want him to give me a clue. I was looking for clues about Forrest Finn because I thought, if I could figure out how this intriguing man thinks, I can figure out the poem, and then I can find the treasure. So I started asking him questions about himself. I figured he went to Bannock, Montana, which is uh, a very cool place. It's a ghost town. And actually tried to find the exact location of where gold was first found in the creek there. So that got into driving a truck across the creek, got very exciting. And all the time I'm writing to Forrest, telling him about this. And he was very interested. And he kept saying, he likes my um, pictures of driving across the creek. He said, you should eke more, eat more eking. What Miss Perkins is saying there is eek, as in E-E-K, or screaming. Right. She would send Forrest videos of her, fording a stream. And he would reply with, you're not screaming enough. Yeah, as I was crossing the creek, I was kind of screaming because I had never driven across a creek before. So what did Petra get out of the relationship? Well, the possibility of getting into the mind of Forrest Fenn to better understand the poem, to better understand the clues, to have a better chance at finding the treasure. And what did Fenn get? Well, he got pictures and videos of a woman out in the wilderness, having fun, searching for his treasure. And when the spirit moved him, he could correspond with her directly and give her suggestions for future videos. We're not here to cast any aspersions against Mr. Fenn, but we would be remiss if we failed to mention some rather unseemly and very publicized behavior coming from Forrest. Was Forrest a blatant flirt? Yes. Was he a dirty old man? Maybe. But only in the benign, harmless, forest-being-forest kind of way. He would just ask them for photos. Maybe invite them to Santa Fe to meet him for lunch, on their dime. And they would comply. Was there ever an obvious quid pro quo? A racy photo for a personal clue to the treasure? No. But nor was there ever not an obvious quid pro quo. If the belief, though unspoken, was that maybe they could get something out of the relationship, well, 
Forrest never dissuaded them. Because you can't con a con man. The late comedian Stephen Wright once remarked that everywhere is walking distance if you have the time. I wonder how he would have interpreted the generally accepted third clue in Forrest's poem. It reads, not far, but too far to walk. Because this has proven to be one of, if not the most, perplexing clues in the poem. Set aside for a moment the arbitrary nature of the clue and place it in the context of the first two clues. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Okay, here we go again. This is the place many of the searchers arrived at in their solves. If the search begins where warm waters halt, remember, begin it where warm waters halt, then we're clearly beside a water source, almost definitely a river or stream of some kind. Then we are to take it in the canyon down, presumably some kind of trail or path beside the river into a canyon of some kind. Okay, cool. Totally with you. But then it's not far but too far to walk, so suddenly we're not walking anymore? Apparently, as many searchers had rafts or kayaks as part of their solves. Some believed it was necessary to swim because, well, it was too far to walk. But how far is too far to walk? Further, although it may seem impossible for there to be a more arbitrary statement in the English language than too far to walk, you need only look back to the beginning of the sentence for the literary gem, not far. For Forrest to say over and over that the clues will lead directly to the treasure seems a wild exaggeration and calls into question the puzzle-solving skills of anyone who sacrificed their own blood and treasure in the quest for Mr. Fenn's. For the intrepid few who had a different solve for not far but too far to walk, the prospects weren't much better, even though the clue seemed clearer. In an earlier episode, the searcher John Morgan let us know that the best way to solve a puzzle isn't figuring out the clues, but figuring out the mind of the puzzle maker. Forrest was 80 years old when he hid his treasure chest, and it was a very heavy object. The logical solution was that he would want to get as close to the hiding spot as possible in his car. So let's look at those clues again from the point of view of an old guy with a heavy thing that he needs to carry into the woods. Begin at where warm waters halt. Okay. So the search begins at a specific place while you're driving. Done. Then you take that road, or maybe a turnoff, dirt road, back road, down into a canyon. Fair enough. Not far, but too far to walk. Okay, not quite as confounding now that we're still in a car. He's basically saying, you could walk it, but you might as well drive it because you're 80 years old and that's what you do. From there, presumably, the rest of the clues would fall into place. Now it would make even more sense that the first clue is the most important, just as Forrest always said it was. It also means that the final resting spot of the chest is tantalizingly close to a road. When it comes to Dale, that piece of information would be very, very important. We'll be back with more X Marks the Spot after this. In 2013, just as the search was making its way into the zeitgeist, Forrest released another book, another memoir, actually, entitled 
too far to walk. I know, right? What, is he rubbing it in? I mean, he had to know how infuriating that supposed clue had to be to the growing legion of obsessed treasure hunters. And here he is, publishing a book that is really just another collection of stories from his life that people gobbled up in the vain hopes of deciphering additional clues that they could then shoehorn into their existing solves and proceed with their well-established confirmation bias. But maybe not this time. Maybe this time there was an actual clue hidden in the text that was of major significance to being able to figure out where Forrest had secreted his golden treasure. But for this to be true, you had to depend on the word of Forrest Fenn, which, when it came to the treasure hunt, was a very tricky proposition. Shortly after the book was published, Fenn sat for an interview and was peppered with questions about how the new book related to the treasure hunt, and more specifically, the fabled poem from his first book, The Thrill of the Chase. You see, thousands of people had been through the poem, books, and every bit of Fenn's writing they could get their hands on, so they could look for patterns or manners of speech that might betray some bit of information that Forrest would rather remain hidden. And they were successful in a few areas. The first, and many believe to be very important, has to do with a single line in the preface of his book, Too Far to Walk. There are other discoveries that relate to later clues that we'll touch on in future episodes. But for now, let's examine the preface of his book and how it relates to the third clue in the poem. Remember, not far, but too far to walk. If we can figure out where warm waters halt and find the correct canyon, we then have to travel a non-specific distance. How wonderful it would be to have some specificity, right? To get into the mind of the man and learn what too far to walk meant to him specifically. If we're treating the nine clues as a series of directions, then obviously that information would be vital. Here's a portion of the preface from his book, Too Far to Walk. My wife has been a wonderful traveling companion, and she always understood when I needed space. Which reminds me of a trip I took many years ago. I put a small rubber dinghy in the Madison River, a few miles from West Yellowstone, Montana, and fished downstream to Baker's Hole. That part of the river was in the quietly forgotten western edge of Yellowstone Park. There were no roads, no trails, and no rangers to remind me that I wasn't supposed to do that. The river distance was about 10 miles, and the best fishing was in the bends where the water turned greenish deep and beautiful. The small boat containing my camping gear was tethered to my belt as I leisurely walked in the river. I spent three days there, casually casting my fly and enjoying the solitude. The river experience cemented my connection to that special country, and I promised myself that someday I would make that trip again. That day never came for me, and my disappointment still casts a lonesome shadow across the Madison River. For me now, it's just too far to walk. Did you hear that? Right there at the end? It's just too far to walk. Coincidence? Forrest's on the record as saying there was an unintended clue in the book Too Far to Walk, and the majority of Fen Watchers believed this to be it. And if true, this would be a huge clue, and here's why. 
If Forrest associated that location, the Madison River along the, quote, quietly forgotten western edge of Yellowstone Park, unquote, if he associated that with the distant memory of it being too far to walk for a man now in his 80s, and he inadvertently used the same colloquialism in his poem as in his description of the location years later, well, there it is. A clever searcher with Google Maps could reverse engineer the 10-mile distance from Baker's Hole, go upstream, until a location presented itself that could be associated with warm waters halting, and the searcher would have a tremendous advantage. When this inadvertent clue was made known, it caused quite a stir in the community of treasure hunters, who had been desperate for some kind of clue or hint that was not manufactured to be a television event or groomed to be more or less useless, like his other very public utterances that he claimed were clues. The treasure was above 5,000 feet. It wasn't in a graveyard. It wasn't associated with any structure. And it wasn't in Idaho or Utah. Those are the public clues that Forrest gave on the Today Show. Now, while on the surface those clues seemed helpful, in reality they were basically used as red meat for his most ardent followers, and more broadly as promotional tools for Forrest Fenn himself. But to the extent that any of that bluster could actually help someone find the treasure? Not likely. But as far as the unintended too-far-to-walk clue, there was, as there always seems to be with Forrest, a catch. Yes, Mr. Fenn admitted that there existed an unintended clue in his book. He just never specifically stated what it was. A few months after the book was released, during a live interview at The Collected Works, Fenn made a comment that wasn't in response to a question that in any way referred to a clue. He mentioned that he was surprised that his publishers failed to include Canada on the map page of his book, Too Far to Walk, a map that detailed the mountains north of Santa Fe, the wide swath of unforgiving mountains that contained his treasure somewhere within. Given that statement, the unintended exclusion of the entirety of Canada led many searchers to believe that that was the clue. You see, Forrest never claimed that the treasure was located in the United States. All he said was, it was in the mountains north of Santa Fe. So, you know, that could have included the Pyrenees. I mean, you know, the Swiss Alps. I mean, you draw a line at 42 degrees around the planet, and anything north of that is, is game. And now, apparently, it could be confirmed that indeed the treasure was somewhere in the Rocky Mountains that lay within the contiguous United States, and definitely not in Canada. Wow, thanks. If that's the case, I can't think of a more foresty thing to do. The belief that it's actually helpful and lamentable for Forrest that searchers could exclude Canada in their searches and could confidently confine their searches to the 200,000 or so square miles of Rocky Mountains that lay completely within the continental United States? Yeah, thanks for that, Forrest. Super helpful. So it's possible to gain a more specific understanding of Forrest Fenn and his motives for how he chose to live the last decade plus of his admittedly amazing and very full life. He seemed content to entertain the adoration of false friends and revel in the praise they lavished upon him. But there was no sword of Damocles here. Forrest's crown didn't rest upon a troubled brow. He had something they wanted, 
and he allowed his legion of fans to do things that would specifically grow his brand and increase his reach and ultimately cement his own legend. There could only ever be one winner for the sweepstakes that was the Fen treasure hunt, and no one understood that better than Forrest himself. And right up until the moment the treasure was found, Fen knew that he had nearly carte blanche when it came to requests from his multitude of followers. They would travel across the country for an audience. They would finance interviews and documentaries, publish daily blogs, write books about his books, and even indulge the flirtations of a once virile man of adventure, all in the hopes of gaining an edge, some slight advantage that may help them in their quest for riches. And every single one of them came up empty-handed. Why? You know why. Because you can't con a con man. Coming up, we investigate famous treasure hunts over the years, take a hard look at the fourth clue and all the trouble it caused, and we'll meet a new treasure hunter who was so sure of her own solve that she was willing to go to court over it. That's next time on X Marks the Spot. Crawl every flat in town From right to malt by the bottle Lying in dirty, torn-up shoes So has my friend become To Frank, no life's a rumble X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forrest Fenn, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening.